looking to, as your sheep, be fed by your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would do precisely that for us. It is our covenant hope in the Lord Jesus Christ that you will speak to us. You have promised to use the preaching of the word for our blessing. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that for us this day, for Christ's sake, in whose name we pray. Amen. Back a few years ago, uh, Bonnie and I visited Universal Studios in Florida. And it was a, a miserable, hot, humid day in August, not unlike we just experienced in Florida. And not long after we arrived uh, and decided what we wanted to see, a dark, threatening bank of clouds bristling with lightning rolled in, dumping oceans of rain all over uh, Universal Studios Park. When storms like that come, the park doesn't shut down, but the rides close until the danger from the lightning passes. And one of the few features that was still open that day uh, between downpours was to get your picture taken with a velociraptor kiosk. Now, if you've not seen this attraction, you might think that it's a big poster of a raptor that you, and you stick your head through a hole, you know, of a cartoon character uh, running from the uh, raptor or whatever. But it's not like that at all. Instead, it's a very real life setting with a strong fence and blinking lights and blaring horns and a large gate and a life-size very real looking raptor comes out through the jungle behind you and suddenly appears over your shoulder snorting (laughs) and uh, eventually making that startling cry that supposedly raptors made. There's a person inside but you can't see them at all and Though you can't see them, the fact that they're in there makes it possible for them to move very realistically. In fact, it's probably one of the most realistic things like this I've ever seen. Well, we're waiting in line to get our picture taken, and ahead of us are families and groups, uh, couples and individuals, and the raptor moves at will, and so she never moves the same way twice, adding really to the realism of the situation. And invariably, when the raptor leaned over a shoulder of someone who was posing to have their picture taken with it, snorted, and then gave its ear-piercing cry, the person, lots of times a woman, would scream and jump in the air and be shocked and go, oh, no, no, no. And uh, we watched quite a few men and women actually jump and, and yell and squirm while we were standing in line. So when it was our turn, Bonnie said to the photographer, I'm not going to scream. So you have plenty of time to get the picture because I won't scream. She then put on her best Scottish Robert the Bruce face and planted herself uh, in the posing spot uh, with me next to her. And the person in the elaborate raptor costume mechanism must have heard her because as soon as she was settled, the raptor leaned over her shoulder, looked right at her, and gave one of those loud, startling cries. And Bonnie went, ah! and jumped all over and was just as scared as any other woman that had been there before her. I jumped too. Um, we all jumped. And uh, it was quite a sight. And if you don't believe it, I have it on film so I can show it to you. 
Now, the thing was, she was not prepared for what the encounter would be like on a personal level. And neither was I, for that matter. Watching was much different than participating in all that. So why here and now am I sharing this story with you in this Sunday morning message about an amusement park in Florida? Well, the answer is this, beloved. We've been talking about moving out into the world to undertake the project of loving God and others, not just in word and tongue, but in deeds and in truth, showing Christ's love, not just in a casual and comfortable way, but in a biblical way, with purpose and zeal, uh, pushing ourselves sometimes out of that place where we're comfortable so that we can be effectual, so that we can be a light in this dark world. We've been talking about it as the only effective means to see any real change in our culture or our society, and as being essential to both our personal confession of faith and our service as a church, as a light in this dark world. Now, here's the thing. Watching other people do that is much different from participating, from actually taking that step ourselves and doing it. Watching other people be a witness like that is different than actually being one ourselves. You might imagine from a distance that you're ready to go out there and start loving people with the gospel. But because it's so much different to actually do it than to watch others or even to plan for it from afar, it is very important that you're ready yourself in every reasonable way to do this work. Now, does this mean that if you're carefully and prayerfully prepared, nothing will creep up behind you and get in your face and try to scare you? No, but it does mean that we go in as ready as we can be, neither being foolish or naive about what it is we're determining to do. So where do we start? Well, we start with the basics, just as Peter does here in 2 Peter chapter 1. And one of those basics is making your calling and election sure. It might sound very elementary, but the first step in preparing has to do with making your own faith certain. Your own faith, the reality of your own faith, sure. If you go out into the darkness of this world, especially with the intention of penetrating that darkness with the light of Christ... You need to be certain of your own place in the kingdom of light. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you have to be sure that that's where you're coming from as you take on that job. It's one thing for a Christian to go out in the weakness of his or her own flesh without prayerful preparation or without being careful to be fully armed of the Lord. That's dangerous enough, beloved. 
But it's quite something else to wade into the world while still being subject to the ruler of this world with the idea that somehow you're going to bring light into the darkness when you're still in darkness yourself. It's often difficult. Uh, and, And that's probably an understatement. To get Christians in this age, especially here in the United States, to take seriously, but not superstitiously, the works and the ways of Satan and his servants. To remember in a a practical way, in a very real way, the Christians need to be sober and to be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. If you intend to go about showing the love of Christ, you have to be prepared, beloved, to really be wrestling against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Uh, Against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And that's why Paul says, by the Holy Spirit, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Because if you determine you're going to live for Christ, and you're going to do that as a testimony in this dark world, and you're going to do it in your home, and you're going to do it here in the house of God, and you're going to do it in your family, in a larger part of your family, and then out into the world itself, If you're going to do that, you're going to find yourself wrestling with principalities and powers, and you need to be prepared for that contest. But it's not even possible, beloved, for you to take on that armor and to be able to make that stand unless first you're truly walking by faith with God through Jesus Christ. So as we talk about going out to the world as ambassadors of Christ, We begin with this most vital and personal issue, the state of your own soul in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I love my grandmother dearly. She took care of me often when I was young, and she could be quite feisty at times. And she used to tell me a story that I think she thought I really needed to hear, uh, especially when she knew that I was going to become a pastor but which really distressed me deeply. She told me the story often. That one Sunday, she went to the church that I grew up in, that she attended, and a visiting pastor began a sermon on this topic. My grandmother was incensed by that. Incensed that he would dare to suggest that someone in the church might not really be what he or she seemed or even thought they were. And so she stormed out, and she would never attend another service where that man preached, even though he was a visiting pastor from time to time at our home church. She would never go here because she was so insulted by the fact that he would ask her to examine her faith. Even as a child, I knew that was a mistake. If you're in Christ, beloved, 
Examining the true character of your faith can only bring encouragement and peace. And if you're not in Christ, it would be a tragedy to never be challenged, to never come face to face with that reality and the need of grace and true faith. To my mind, there's nothing sadder than thinking of someone being lulled into hell by a false sense of security. John Brown says, this is painful, but it's not much better to be made aware, but is it not much better to be made aware of this now than to dream on until they wake in hell? Now looking at Second Peter chapter 1, you'll find this admonition in verse 10. And that's where we're looking this morning. Second Peter 1.10 Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never stumble. Now, when you look at that statement in, in chapter, chapter 1, verse 10, it has to be considered in its full context. Uh, you can tell that because it begins with a therefore which uh, obviously indicates that, there's, that this is a conclusion based on something said before. And then he refers to doing certain things, which we need to know to understand what he's saying here. But before we consider those things, and we will touch on some of them here in the days ahead, I just want to look this morning at the admonition itself. The first thing that we want to note is that it is directed to the brethren. He's speaking to brethren. That's what he says in this, in this statement. He's calling on brethren to make their calling and election sure. And how do we define that term? Well, all we need to do is to look up at the very first verse in the chapter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is addressing those who profess to be believers, men and women and children who have obtained precious faith with us, he says, through the Lord Jesus Christ. So his appeal is being made to professing believers. Despite my grandmother's objections, Peter judged by God the Holy Spirit that this was a good exercise for you and me and all the brethren. And it's worth noting that Peter doesn't use this term anywhere else in his writings. It's described by John Lilly, one of the, one of the great commentators on First and Second Peter, as an expression of his love and earnestness in this matter. In other words, it's his love for them as brothers and sisters in Christ that compels him, at least in part, to call on them to consider this matter. And I reiterate, Christians have nothing to fear from examining their faith. And it's a good exercise for us from time to time. Certainly, we ask our God to do it even as King David did. In Psalm 26, verse 2, David, crying out to the Lord, says, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. And it's not what 
And was it not what Jesus was really getting to with Peter when he kept asking Peter repeatedly, do you love me? What was he asking Peter to do? It was to examine his own heart, to examine the character of his own faith like he had never examined it before. And it's at least plausible that Peter had that very moment in mind when he was writing the opening of this epistle. <coughs> he, he, had made, he, was, he knew what it was like to make bold professions of Christ in leisure and what it was like to crumble in a moment of testing and trial. Now, it's because we can be so easily self-deceived. And it's so easy for people to be hypocritical that this is a wise thing to do. You'll recall that the church in Laodicea considered itself rich, wealthy, and in need of absolutely nothing. But Jesus told them they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They thought they didn't need anything. They had everything that could be required. And Jesus showed them they were in need of everything. Jesus called on them to examine themselves, to see their real need, and to repent. And it's Paul who says to us in Galatians, and this is chapter 6 and verse 3, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. John Brown, another uh, blessed uh, commentator on uh, this chapter, says, it's necessary that those who profess to be called and chosen should inquire whether they are so indeed. For many suppose themselves called and chosen who have no satisfactory evidence that they are. Nay, who have abundant and most satisfactory evidence if they would not attend to if they would but attend to it that they are not. Now, the second thing you see here is that there is a call for added diligence. So first address the brethren, to those who profess themselves to be believers. Then there is this call for added diligence. This is a call to be more than diligent, actually, in this matter. It's a call to be extra diligent. Don't be just ready and quick in this matter, but be anxiously willing and fast to act in it, is what Peter says. Not just earnest, but deeply sincere in searching these things out. Not just studious about it, but carefully searching them out with purpose and with design. You remember, I'm sure, the words of the Apostle Paul to the Philippians in chapter 3. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on 
that I may lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. What is Paul saying to believers there? He's saying, you should have the same mind in this matter that I do. And the mind I have is that I want to apprehend Christ, that thing for which I have been apprehended. In other words, I want the confirmation of my calling and election evident in my heart and life. You can think of it this way. When you have done what you perceive to be an adequate job in examining these matters, Peter says, do it again, more prayerfully and more carefully. When you've done this job, when you've examined yourself, when you've examined your your place in Christ, do it again, more carefully, more prayerfully. You know, most of us have had the experience where we type out a text or an email or a slide on PowerPoint, like uh, I saw this morning. I don't know who typed that, but somebody did. And we pay attention to it, and we try to be accurate. Uh, I typed out that slide and went over it and then corrected some mistakes and checked it again. And uh, this morning I noticed I still missed something. So we can read it over just to be sure. And then, you know, you take that email or you take that text or you take that slide and you send it off only discover, to discover later that you left out a word or you misspelled something or you forgot to put a space in, even though you're being careful. We've all had that experience. The point is that people who can be so vulnerable in missing something so obvious and something rather unimportant do well to be diligent in something where the situation may be much more subtle in nature and have much more serious consequences. In Proverbs 26, verse 12, Solomon says, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. And I want to stress again, I know this is the third time I've said it, but I don't think I can say it enough. That those who have true faith have nothing to fear from such a practice. It doesn't create uncertainty and doubt when it's done biblically, unless there's some just cause for uncertainty and doubt. This is so important. John Brown says, A mistake here must be dangerous, and if persevered in fatal, he who thinks himself called when in reality is not, is in a far greater danger of never being called than he who is quite conscious that he is an entire stranger to what is termed the Christian calling and quite careless about it. Now think of that Pharisee standing in the temple and praying with himself. He could not have been more sure, could he, of his righteousness in the sight of God? Would he have been any more sure of that? Than he, than he was. And yet, what did Jesus say? He said, I tell you, this man, the humble, penitent tax collector, 
went down to his house justified rather than the other, the self-justified and approving uh, Pharisee. <coughs> For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's all we're looking for in this examination. It's humbling ourselves before the Lord so that we can be exalted by the truth. You know, we live in an age where self-adoration is common enough. But self-examination in the light of the word of God is quite rare. While uh, waiting for our flights, uh, the Lynches were with us. We drove around Orlando a little bit and we grabbed a lunch and we visited a few garden parks and we drove around the mall and as we turned one corner of the mall parking lot, this big museum was there. And I had never seen it before or heard of it before. It was called Selfie World. And world is spelled W-R-L-D. There's no O in that. And some of you might be familiar with it. And, of course, my initial reaction was, that's all we need is a selfie world. It's not enough that we have uh, people obsessed with making selfies of themselves. Now there's a world to be involved in. And I didn't know much about it, so I looked it up. There's a cover charge of $25, and the fees go up from there. And the basic idea is that it provides all sorts of venues so that you can get your very best selfie of yourself. Well, it has all kinds of opportunities where you can pose in different situations and uh, do things that will get the very best picture of you for yourself. This, beloved, isn't about making you look your very best. This personal self-examination is about seeing who you really are in Christ. It's not about posturing not about posing it's about a prayerful effort to be sure that you are in thought and word and deed who you believe yourself to be in Jesus Christ knowing this is elementary to being properly prepared to go out into the world bearing precious seed by knowing our weakness we put more trust in Christ One of the reasons believers get burned when they go out and try to bear witness for Christ is because they're intimidated or frightened away is because they've gone out in their own strength rather than out in their weakness. The more we know of our weakness, the more our trust will be in him and not in ourselves. It's he who gives power to the weak, Isaiah 40, verse 29 says. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. By facing our frailty... We can approach others with humility. That was stressed in the the Sunday school lesson this morning. We're talking about the, the critical race theory. We have to understand our own frailty so that we can then understand the frailty of others and, and move forward with a spirit of humility as we speak with people. By acknowledging the extent of grace in you, You can speak to others in need with confidence. Because one of the things that keeps people from from being willing to bear witness for Christ is, well, what can I do to help them? Well, you already know the answer to that, don't you? What can you do to help them? 
nothing in regards to their soul. You can't really do anything to change their soul. All you can do is deliver the message of hope. Where does the power of that message come from? You being so winsome, you being so charming, you being so clever in your presentation of the gospel? No! It comes from the power of God flowing through that word into the heart of that person by God's will and by God's purpose. And that is an overwhelming power that they cannot resist any more than you could when it was pressed upon your heart and your life. But we understand that better when we examine ourselves and we realize afresh what I have in Christ is not because I'm so smart or not because I want to be so holy or because I want to be so good, but it's because of what Christ has done through me, what Christ has done in me by his grace and by his power and by his love. And beloved, when we understand that in ourselves, then we go forward towards others with confidence, not in what we're going to do, but in what Christ has promised to do through you, his people, his ambassadors of reconciliation, his lights in the dark world. It also has a purpose in view to make one's calling and election sure. Now, understanding what Peter is calling for here is really vital. Now, Peter, in this context, is talking about gaining assurance by the existence of evidence. The meaning is, says Brown, seek diligently to make it evident, both to yourself and others, that you are indeed called and elected. Paul describes the election and the calling of the Christian in Romans chapter 8, another familiar passage. Begin in verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Is that where it ends? Is that where it ends? No. To those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknow, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestinated, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. <coughs> Our confession of faith describes this effectual calling in Christ Jesus in this way. Drawing from the scripture... And including Paul's words here, our confession says this in chapter 10, paragraph 1. All those whom God has predestinated unto life, and those only he is pleased and has appointed an accepted time effectually to call by his word and his spirit, out of that state of sin and death in which they were by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. And here's what begins happening enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his mighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. That description of, of, of what it means to be called in Christ 
is one worthy of reflection. But that's what we're talking about. That's what Peter's talking about, looking for in your life. That enlightening of your mind spiritually and savingly to the understanding of the things of God. Um, That taking away of the heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. Renewing your will by his almighty power. Helping you to determine what is truly good. And effectually drawing you to Christ and to the image of the Son. It's to this that Peter is asking you to be sure that you've been called, beloved. Now understand that you're not being asked to make God's promises or work any more certain. No one can do that. And it's not asking you to make sure your name is really written in the Lamb's Book of Life by scribing over it several times and darkening it in just to be sure. <laughs> you know how you sign something sometime and you realize, well, it didn't come out quite the way it should, and you scratch your name in there again to make sure it's really clear? That's not what you're being asked to do. It's simply this, as Lily puts it, to confirm our assumption for ourselves by evidence drawn from the appearance to the reality. Now, early this summer, a chalky stain spread out into Commencement Bay. Any of you see that? Spreading out there? No one saw it? I know you've seen it other times, right? If you followed the source of that stain... You would soon be up on the Puyallup River, of course. And if you kept at it, you would be climbing into the Cascades and making various, marking various streams that were flowing into the, the river from the melting snow. But at the end of your 45-mile journey, you would come to the glacier head that was the source of the Puyallup River, filling it with pulverized granite producing that chalky appearance that spills out into Commencement Bay. What you found in the bay was the result of what was coming from the original source up on that mountain. What Peter is calling for here, beloved, is for you and me to trace back all the things we believe to be the evidence of our calling and election and to see if they all flow down into our lives from the source. From our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. From the work of God and his spirit and his word in our hearts. Thus providing evidence that our calling and election is sure. I hope that makes sense. Perhaps it's best to explain it this way. John Lilly says, John knew that he had passed from death into life, not because he laid his head on Jesus' chest, but because he loved his brethren. John knew that he had passed from death into life, not because he laid his head on Jesus' chest, but because he loved his brethren. You go back to our theme passage, 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. How am I going to assure my heart before him? 
by loving in the name of God, in deed, and in truth, and being able to see that as a result of the work of God in me. Now, Paul loved the Thessalonian church, and he had great confidence in their faith. And I'm not going to read the whole passage this morning because of time. If you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he explains that the reason he has this great confidence in their faith is because he sees the work of God in their hearts. And that brings us back to the beginning. On Brown's Point, there stands a lighthouse. And some of you have been to that lighthouse. Remember when it was uh, in Ramona's uh, uh, possession? And at one point in time, it served an important purpose. If the point were obscured by darkness or fog or rain, that light would have worn ships away from Brown's Point. But the setting of that light hardly needed to be very secure. It was never in much danger from wind or waves. Its environment was rather quiet and secure. But go down to the Oregon coast and look out at the Tillamook Lighthouse. And it's quite a different story, isn't it? For that light to be of any use to anyone it had to be solidly anchored against powerful forces. It had to be able to sustain a beating and still give out a warning glow. If it had not been solidly anchored, it would have been wiped out in the first great storm. It couldn't be built like the lighthouse on Brown's Point. That lighthouse would never stand out on Tillamook Rock. For a long while, the church in America, Christians in America, have been planted on a fairly calm point, able to shine our lights in, in fog and rain. But beloved, the environment is very quickly changing. And now, like the Tillamook Lighthouse, if you're going to be of any use, you need to be certain that you're well anchored and clearly shining in the darkness. Paul told the Corinthians, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And that's who we need to be in these uncertain and tumultuous and difficult times. Always abounding, being steadfast and immovable. Next time, Lord willing, we'll see how Peter says we can put our calling and election to the test. We can go back to that source and see how it flows down, those things flow down into our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know every heart. You know the thought of every mind. No one's thoughts, designs, or purposes here this morning is hidden from you. Lord, we can hide our hearts from others, and Lord, at times we can even hide ourselves from them, our, our own reality from ourselves. So we pray, Lord, that we would be anxious, that you would look upon us this morning,
Examine us, Lord, and see if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, if there's anyone here who, when they seriously bear down on this issue, must confess that they can't find what they know they need to find, I pray, Lord, that today you would show them the grace that would allow them to go from pretense to reality. From assuming an assumption to faith and conviction. Please, Lord, you have told us that this is the day of salvation. And we pray, Lord, that you would make it so for any in that place. And for all who are in you, we pray, Lord, that we would joyfully trace back where the things we claim are the evidences of our faith, where they come from so that we can trace afresh the grace and the mercy and the love that you have for us as individuals. And Lord, delight in it. And see, once again, we are what we are, not by our works and not by our efforts and not by our faithfulness, but by your grace, by your love, by your care for us. And Lord, then go out bearing precious seed, knowing, Lord, that your elect are out there, your called are out there, And you've called on us to be a light and a witness in the world. Lord, this is essential now. It always has been. But it feels more so now as uh, things darken around us. We pray, Lord, that we will be securely anchored in Christ so that we may withstand and continue to be a light giving life and hope even in the storm and the darkness. Please, Father, work in us. Work in us as individuals. Work in us as families. Work in us as a church towards this end. And may the glory be yours forever and ever. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn number 693 as we close this morning. 693.